there. Thanks for listening to this podcast. I hope that you'll consider, in accordance with Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donation only. If you'd like to support my work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. And also, please consider my six-week online video course available at learn.tricycle.org, which offers an in-depth exploration of feeling secure in an unstable world. And finally, don't forget to check out my book, Unsubscribe, which is available at bookstores and online retail outlets. Thanks for being a friend of Dharma Punks, New York City. Tonight's talk is on pretty much my favorite topic, because if there's anything that propelled me to Buddhist practice when I was a kid, my father was a Buddhist. He uh, converted uh, when I was about 10 years old, and what really fueled my interest, beyond the fact that it seemed sort of cool and different, and besides the fact that my dad didn't give me much of a choice, he dragged me in the 1970s to Buddhist centers. So as a little punk kid, we're going to hear famous Buddhists teach. And the, beyond the fact that the philosophy of the Buddha always seemed sound to me, but most of all, it was... Uh, his approaches to alleviating core psychological issues, especially anxiety, because as a kid and throughout my life, I've struggled on and off with uh, persistent anxiety disorder, born of uh, growing up with an alcoholic, all of the traumas and attachment schema that came about for that. So I really got into... Buddhist practice less with this goal of seeking enlightenment or some mystical transcendence of the dualistic conditional realm of the life we normally live. I wasn't interested in all that wonderful stuff. I was interested in how do I address my own struggles and challenges which were largely anxiety. So what is anxiety? Well, fear is the uh, anticipation, or not the anticipation, I should say, fear is the physiological reaction to a present danger or threat. Anxiety is the anticipation of a threat that's actually not present. If you're walking down a street at night and it's dark and you hear suddenly footsteps behind you and your heart starts to race, and you start to feel it pounding, and the hair in the back of your neck stands up, and you go into a cold sweat, and you start to feel yourself wanting to run, that is fear, because there's an actual sensation of present danger that you've heard, footsteps. But if you're walking down a street, and there's been absolutely no signal whatsoever of a threat, but you still have that reaction, it's based entirely on the anticipation that a stressor or a trigger or a threat or a danger will appear in the future. That is anxiety. Anxiety is fear based on anticipation, not on actuality. Does that make sense? In essence, all anxiety is disproportionate in the sense that we're reacting to a non-existent uh, threat, danger. There are four orientations that anxiety uh, has been said to take, and this is from early psychological theory. Orientations of anxiety are the anxiety or the anticipation of annihilation. That's run-of-the-mill expecting to be overwhelmed, destroyed, killed by some outside force or some, something that will end our existence. The vulnerability of life, as it were. The second orientation is anxiety about separation from the loved. So human beings are 
bonding species. We need to bond with others to survive in infancy. We're all born way prematurely and can't survive on our own for many years. So our survival requires the dedicated caregiving of another. So the anticipation of a caregiver or an attachment figure abandoning, rejecting, shaming, disconnecting feels almost as dangerous as annihilation. In fact, for infants, it pretty much feels the same. The third orientation is neurotic anxiety. I like to feel I patented this one. <laughs> I feel there should be like in the textbooks, my image next to neurotic anxiety. <laughs> That's the belief or anticipation that there's something internal, an impulse, a feeling, an emotion, uh, an experience that will surface and when it does, it will lead to either death or expulsion from the tribe. There's something inside of me that's completely unlovable, uh, horrific, dark, that nobody will be able to tolerate. And if they could see this core constituent of me, that I would be forever uh, cast out. And nobody would ever want to have anything to do with me. Um, anybody ever have anything like that? Okay. And then decompensation anxiety. And I've had in my life all of these four, so you don't get to choose, at least in my case. <laughs> decompensation anxiety is the run-of-the-mill fear of losing one's mind, essentially falling apart, not being able to put back the pieces together, the sense of holy shit, I'm losing my shit, I won't be able to put my shit back together, I'm fucked. Uh, every time I did acid, I had decompensation anxiety. So I have uh, uh, one of many uh, realms that anxiety pops up in my life is I have a fear of heights, which I should have uh, I guess there's no way I could tell everybody that, but I got asked to do this um, interview, this filmed interview, and I get there and it's on the top of the six-story building with pretty much no railing overlooking this drop, and they said, can you stand right over there? And my heart was pumping and I was sweating and I was, you know, I had to use all the tools, which I'll later be happy to share to, you know, to get through that. You might think that that's annihilation anxiety, but actually it's, that is neurotic anxiety because I don't have a fear that somebody's going to push me over the edge or, or a gust of wind will toss me over the edge. No, no, that would be too normal. I have a, a fear that some suicidal impulse in me will take control of my limbs and I will hurl myself <laughs> over the edge. So, uh, um, so that's uh, neurotic anxiety. So uh, I'll talk about how these four pattern out in a moment. There's two manifestations of anxiety, the way ma anxiety is experienced. Uh, and you can literally see the difference on functional magnetic resonant imaging studies. So, and the Buddha even noticed these two different experiences of anxiety. Now, the first is arousal. Arousal is the physiological terror, the racing heartbeat, the hairs standing up, the sweating, the darting eyes, the jumpy attention, and uh, the muscle contraction, the release of cortisol flooding the body, the stress hormone, and that is uh, essentially what arousal is doing, is orienting us towards an external threat. So it's priming us to defend ourselves 
but it's also activating a part of the brain called the inferior temporal lobe, which is the part of the brain that scans the world around us looking for predators or something that will attack us. So, uh, arousal, which is largely physiological, is externally fixated. You're following me? So the physical type of, uh, of anxiety is largely aimed towards external threats. There's also apprehension. Apprehension is far more cognitive in nature. It's the spiraling, intrusive, repetitive thoughts that won't stop and keep us uh, uh, up late at night. Uh, the ideas, the rumination, and especially the worrying that, of scenarios and situations that have not come to pass. Worries about financial insecurity, about losing one's job, about uh, all the things that could go wrong in life. When we look at fMRI scans, instead of being in the right hemisphere like arousal, uh, this is entirely or largely left hemispheric, the activation as a ventral medial lobe, which means the orientation is internal. So with arousal, which is physiological, you're scanning the external world for the threat, but when you are in apprehension, or at least when I'm in apprehension, I won't speak for you, the threat we're looking out for is something internal, a feeling or an emotion that we're scared of experiencing that we are concerned will arise. Now this makes sense because right around the time that neurotic anxiety, which is internal, and decompensation anxiety, which is also fear of losing one's mind or one's internal experience, starts to develop around the same time that language uh, really takes hold and we become largely left hemispheric around age five, six, seven. And so at that time we learn to deflect attention from the world and find shelter up in our thinking. And so it's quite natural that we would become uh, far more cognitive in regards to these primal anxieties, fear of something in us being so unlovable it will lead to our social rejection or to our death and decompensation anxiety. So how do we deal with, or let me, I'll talk about first how they come about, what's the mechanism, and then I'll talk about how we deal. So arousal. Arousal, the physiological anxiety, the mechanism boils down to in the past, we had a scary experience. During that scary experience, all of the sensations that were present were stored in the right amygdala. The amygdala is the primal fight, flight, freeze. Uh, it has its own memory. Uh, it's got a very poor memory function. It can't, re it can't remember narratives or sequences. It can only remember stimuli. <laughs> But everything it, it stores, it stores as, if I see this again, I'm going to get worried or panicky or anxious because everything I'm experiencing right now, I consider to be a threat, simply because it happened during a difficult experience. Therein lies the problem. A lot of the sensory stimuli that occurs during a uh, dangerous time is not actually dangerous. I'll give you an example. You're driving in a car and you're listening to music. And yesterday I asked somebody to name a band and they said, of all things, the Eagles. <laughs> Which is just traumatic for me hearing. <laughs> there is literally no musical group I hate more. <laughs> So everything that happened in that moment was became a future trigger for me. No. <laughs> but you're not listening to the Eagles, that's for sure, because you have a 
forebrain, you are conscious. So uh, you are listening to Steely Dan. I don't really like them either, but at least they're a vast improvement. And Ricky Don't Lose That Number is playing on your car radio, and you're waiting for another song, but it's on there. <laughs> and maybe because you're anticipating another song, you, uh, you jump the gun on a light and a car slams into you. And in that moment, every sensory stimuli that's present will be stored in your amygdala, including Ricky Don't Lose That Number. <laughs> and the fact that it's on 34th Street and 6th Avenue or whatever. So the next time you're on that block or you hear Ricky don't lose that number, guess what? You will have a physiological state of arousal because your amygdala is not smart enough to discern that it wasn't Steely Dan really that was a danger. But it is. All right, yeah, okay. What is it? If it fires together, it wires? Yeah, exactly. The brain, uh, that's, uh, uh, what's his name? Starts with an H. Heaven, uh, what's his? Hebel, I can't remember his name. But yes, that's it. Um, the, anything that's present when neurons are firing, uh, anything that's firing while neurons are firing in mass gets wired together. So your amygdala, when it's flooded with adrenaline, cortisol, and a set of choline will record all of the stimuli present. It doesn't know which is dangerous and which is safe. So in the future, when you encounter a similar sensation or impression, you will have a fight-flight response. Uh, the neuroscientist Joseph Ledoux talks about my favorite example, couple breaking up over a checkered tablecloth years later, somebody's wearing that same checkered pattern. If you see them, you will start to feel sad, despondent, because it'll trigger the same emotional response as when you were breaking up over that checkered tablecloth. That's what causes the physiological arousal. It's the anticipation of a dangerous experience based upon the... Uh, neurocepted, which means unconsciously processed uh, interaction with a trigger that is similar to a stimuli that was present during an earlier traumatic event. You following me? That was a needlessly complex sentence, but maybe, <laughs> maybe you, fo you follow it. So wh what do you do about it? How do you address it? Well, there's really only one core way to address this, and it's called exposure therapy. What it is, is you essentially, in a titrated way, expose yourself to those triggers and you use certain tools to essentially deactivate the uh, response so that um, eventually when you encounter those triggers in the future, you no longer have the fight flight freeze, anxiety attack. So, for example, somebody uh, in a large public space is swept up in a crowd, uh, it's frightening, and then after a while they start to develop agoraphobia. There's literally no other solution for them to address it but to slowly, with using a number of tools to inter go back outdoors into a large public area. The first time they do it, their hearts will pound. They will feel like they're going to die. Uh, there are, however, some ways to uh, cheat to make it bearable. The first thing to do is to take a beta blocker. And if you don't have very low blood pressure, you take uh, something like Inderol. And that uh, is generic, and it simply prevents fight-flight-freeze response. It actually stops the autonomic nervous system from being triggered. So you can actually reintroduce yourself to stressors uh, without having the same anxiety attack. And then over time, you can titrate off the Inderol until you 
uh, don't need it anymore, and your brain is habituated to it. Classically, this is seen all the time with people who have stage fright, who are musicians, they take uh, beta blockers, and then gradually they take less and less and they can perform live without feeling terrified or having a panic attack. Another tool that you can use in exposure therapy is grounding or orienting, which means essentially uh, create a sensation that distracts your attention from the trigger or look at something that's not the trigger. So when I had to give this interview at the top of this building, I stared maniacally into the eyes of the person that was interviewing me. <laughs> Another approach is to bring something with you that's tactile that you associate with safety. The right hemisphere, which activates arousal, is very, very uh, attuned to uh, sensations, to time of day, to things that remind it of safety. So I was talking with somebody the other day, and she is a, she had to do this large public speaking event. And virtually everybody has some fear of public speaking because there's always in almost all of our history sometime in grade school where we get up and we say something in front of kids and they laugh and we feel ashamed and we feel kind of traumatized. So nobody particularly loves unless they're narcissistic, uh, or unless they grew up with just the most wonderful, loving, supportive, you know, childhood and, and school schemas and all that. But most of us have some degree of uh, nervous anticipation when the spotlight is on us. So she, uh, this woman who had to do it, likes to knit. So she knew intuitively to bring with her something that she had constructed, and she literally put it on the chair and she sat on it and, and touched it when she started to feel nervous and she went through it without much of an issue. So that's an approach, that's called titrating. Uh, or you could be all Buddhist about it and you could use some of the tools like one, long, sustained, smoothed out-breaths which actually tell your amygdala that you're safe literally how you breathe, and also the way you hold the musculature in the front of your body, which is where the vagal vagus nerve runs down. You can tone the vagal vagus nerve by softening the belly, softening the chest, dropping the shoulders, relaxing the muscles in the front of the throat. That's where the nerve goes down, and the vagal, vag vagal vagus nerve reports back up through the insula to the amygdala, and it says, we're, we're safe now because we're all relaxed is it talks in that irritating, squeaky voice. Um, I have no idea why I did that, but I needed to explain it afterwards. So, uh, so that's an approach as well. Uh, a friend of mine who works uh, clinically with um, soldiers with PTSD, complex, often PTSD, uh, will get them to narrate traumatic experiences. But while he does it, he will focus on helping them breathe, and also have them uh, touch soft images or clutch and release muscles in their body to ground them and to orient them away so that they won't become flooded by the traumatic trigger. Okay? So that's the way we, we address arousal. But what about apprehension? My favorite, well... As I indicated, apprehension is very left hemispheric, but what is the underlying cause? Well, uh, one of the chief theories was by the great American psychologist Carl Rogers, and it goes like this. Um, very early on in life, our primary goal or necessity is to develop a set of behaviors, uh, feelings, emotions, uh, that other people will find likable and to remove from our experience any feelings, emotions, impulses, behaviors that other people reject. So we develop a set of preferred emotions and feelings, and the emotions and feelings and desires and impulses that uh, are not 
uh, acceptable in the family systems, the social systems, and the culture that we grow up in, we will repress. We will suppress first, that means pushing it down, and then repress, keep it unconscious, because we don't want to manifest anything that people will reject. Human beings are social beings. Nothing is worse for us than the feeling of social rejection. So we will do anything to expel even the most natural emotions, right? Even the most natural impulses. In our culture, which is a deeply misogynist culture, women are very often shamed for having natural experiences of anger very early on in life, and they are punished for it, so they learn to suppress and repress feelings of anger. If you grow up with same-sex attraction, guess what? Where our culture is very homophobic, you might for a while feel the desire to essentially suppress what really cannot be suppressed. So we will attempt to essentially suppress and repress the most natural human inclinations. In our journey, we develop what's called self-concepts, stories about who we are, what our identity is. And those are the stories that we built out of what we believe makes us lovable to others. We tell the story of I'm smart, I'm confident, I'm spiritual, I'm kind, I'm uh, creative. And anything that uh, is unlovable, we keep out of our self-concept, our identity beliefs about ourselves. Well, guess what? It turns out that these entirely natural emotions that have been shamed or impulses or feelings that we've suppressed eventually don't stay away forever. They come back up. And when they start to surface, these early uh, painful memories, these desires and feelings that were unacceptable to our families or to our social structures or cultures, when they start to surface, because these are deeply threatening to our self-concept and the stories we tell about ourselves, guess what we feel? Anxiety. Hence the talk, right? Remember? So that is another cause of apprehension. It is the reappearance, the surfacing, the return, as Freud said, of the repressed. When that starts to happen, Freud said, there's this signal anxiety that happens, and the first thing that we do uh, is start to panic internally and start to try to figure out a way to make sense of why we're feeling something that is entirely at odds with the self-concept we've constructed. The more the self-concept is at odds with the way we feel naturally, our felt experience, the more anxiety. Because any emotion, feeling, or impulse, or desire that we haven't integrated into our self-concept will feel like a threat, will feel dangerous, and it will make us anticipate disaster. The Buddha anticipated all of this. In the Sabhasava Sutta, he said, in quotes, it's, well, not in quotes, he didn't literally say this, nobody knew what he said 2,500 years ago, that's ridiculous. But he said something like, I mean, the, the Pali Canon goes back a way, it uh, goes back pretty much 2,000, like, 200 years. So he said something along the lines of it's unskillful to uphold a self-identity in Pali, that's Sakayaditi, that isn't fluid or capable of change or adaption. It creates a, a dense wilderness of views, that's Papancha in Pali, filled with contorted, slithering thoughts. And he's comparing our thoughts to like snakes in a forest. One is hobbled and hindered, subjected to distress and despair. In the Paticca Samapada, the Buddha's core teaching, he says that when there's unconscious 
dukkha or stress, it leads directly to obsessive ideation. Lots and lots of thinking. So, what do we do about it? Well, this is where the age-old practice of mindfulness, sati, which is developing unconditionally friendly, welcoming relationship with one's internal experience. Instead of feeling at odds with these returning feelings and emotions that are largely physical, because the left hemisphere, the thoughts, are protecting us from a physiological emotion or feeling or desire that's returning. Instead of being at war with the way we feel, instead of running from our desires or from our memories or from our core emotions, we embrace, we welcome, and we create a safe container to hold the underlying emotion, feeling, uh, memory, whatever it is that is causing the obsessive ideation. You're following me, I hope? So it's about embracing, without judgment, unconditional friendliness, our internal experience. So to make this manageable, the Buddha said, we don't just do it all globally. You break down the returning feelings that are awkward, like the feeling of fear, or anger, if anger has been shamed from you, or if sadness and depression in your family was not acceptable, that my dad didn't like a lot of these things, so I learned to repress them. So when we start to feel these foreign uh, physiological, emotional states, we break it down. Because they feel like threats to us. They feel dangerous. So to reintegrate them into our self-concept of who we are, where we no longer tell the story of, I'm always smart, where we can accept the times where we feel foggy, unenthusiastic, overwhelmed, so that we can embrace those parts of ourselves that we believe other people will shun. We break it down first, how does it feel in the breath and the body overall? That's called rupa, just the first foundation. There's just notice what happens in my breath when this emotion or feeling or memory starts to return. The second is what feelings accompany. And feelings are events that happen in the front of the body, the vagal vagus nerve largely. We look for any kind of contraction or tension in the face, the throat, the muscles in the neck, the shoulders, the chest, and the stomach. So that's where we'll pay attention to, just the front of the body, any muscle contractions, any clinching, any tightness. And the third is what happens to the quality of attention when this feeling or memory happens. Quality of attention is not the actual content. It's the, is the attention contracted and tiny, or is it spacious? Are we distracted or present? Are we relaxed, or is there a, an emotional state of fear or anger present? What is happening in the mind while this starts to return? Whatever we encounter, we greet. We don't reject. We don't push away. It is the rejection. It is the, uh, it is the attempt to resist that causes the anxiety. If we can remove that resistance and embrace and create a, a safe container for the underlying feelings that we've banished from our experience so many years ago, we will be able to have the return of the repressed occur without the bouts of anxiety that it triggers. Okay? So that's what we're actually going to do in our meditation. Thank you for listening. If somebody could just turn on the lights just a little bit. And we are now going to put tonight's talk, that's great, into practice. So...
find a really nice, comfortable, uh, sustainable posture. I like to recommend just tilting while your eyes are closed, back and forth, front and back, and just with your eyes closed, allow your body to determine, to come to a standstill, and allow your body to tell you what feels right for it. And then tilt your head slightly back, like you're looking at a moderately tall building, say about 20 stories. So you're not looking up at the Empire State Building, but you're looking up at a tallish building. And we're doing this to prevent the head from slouching in front of the body. And now we're going to try to cultivate the feelings of arriving in life. So what is arriving in life? It's those rare times that we reach a destination that we've been longing for. You've traveled a long distance. Then you've gotten off the plane. You've gotten out of a long, bumpy taxi drive. Taken all your bags out of the trunk. You've carried them in to a little remote cottage by a beach. And you drop the bags and you just find... a chair that's really comfortable and you sit facing the ocean. And what happens in your body then? Your shoulders relax. There's this release of any tension in your forehead. See if you can relax. Breathe into the forehead and relax it. The eyes begin to settle in the eye sockets. The muscles in your back settle into the chair. There's no resistance to this seated position. When your shoulders drop, they gently pull a little back to open up your chest, which receives the breath. And especially the stomach, abdominal muscles soften. So there's no tightness, there's no clenching, there's no resistance. You've completely arrived at a moment you want to cherish. And beyond this physiological response, there's also a cognitive response to reaching a destination to arriving in life. It's that state of mind where we no longer have anywhere to go, nothing to do, no one to please or worry about. Any concern about the future or inclination to plan, anything beyond this moment is deeply unattractive because we've reached that time, that place, that set of circumstances that we really cherish. And if you want this in your life, it's really not about going anywhere. It's just about recreating that feeling in the body and that letting go in the mind. <clears throat> One way to stay present and truly arrived is just to 
take in all the sensations that are actually happening, that we're not creating. Those would include the sounds that are naturally occurring right now, drifting up from the Bowery, people talking, cars, horns, traffic. That would include any lights flickering behind closed eyelids, any sensations of heat on the skin, the soft caress of clothing, and perhaps most prominently there might also be the internal sensation of breathing, in and out. So for a while, just try to stay landed in life, in this moment that we don't want to let slip away. And really the way it slips away is when a thought arises in the mind without our bidding, and we climb into that thought and it whisks us away into a little virtual reality that's very different from what's happening right here and right now. <coughs> this thought could be a memory, a plan, a worry. And for this part of the meditation, when those thoughts arise, just note them, don't push them away, just say you're allowed to be there, but keep in the foreground of awareness the breathing, the sounds, the lights flickering behind closed eyelids, anything that's happening naturally. And if the thought is sneaky and it slips by your watchfulness and the next thing you know you're in a constructed, fabricated reality. No worries, nothing to be frustrated about happens all the time. Just feel good that you've noticed it and just relax back into the present. Just release back into the sensations that are all around you and give yourself a reward, a nice in-breath like you're smelling a scented candle and then a long out-breath like you're blowing out that candle. Each time your mind wanders away, no worries, no frustration, no impatience, nothing but gratitude for awakening in that moment and coming back to a nice reward of a really soothing breath.
So at this point, allow the sensations of the present time to begin to drift a little back from the foreground of awareness, like they're characters on a stage and they're no longer on the front of the stage, they've taking a few steps back. And now I'd like you to bring to mind something that will undo all that good work, but before we do that, I want you to take just a snapshot of how your breathing is right now after you've been meditating for a little while, is your breath (coughs) full or shallow, is it long or short, just have a general sense of what this breath feels like, and then this breath. And now survey the front of your body, the sensations in your face. Does your brow feel very tight? Does your jaw feel clenched? How about the muscles in either the front of the throat or the back of the neck? Is the chest open and spacious, or does it feel tight and contracted? (coughs) And what about the abdominal muscles? Do they feel clenched, or is your belly soft, released? And I'll take a note. Does your mind feel settled? Or is your awareness, your attention jumping about from one thing to the next? Does your mind feel open and spacious with lots of room or does it feel tight and cramped and claustrophobic? Those are the three areas we'll be observing and welcoming. So now I'd like you to bring to mind something that you worry about. Something that starts spinning the thoughts, generating the catastrophizing. Something that creates a lot of negative expectations. Concerns about a relationship, about money, about health. Concerns about specific individuals. What are the worrying topic? or topics that ignite, starts the wheels spinning. But this time, whatever it is you're bringing to mind, I'd like you to notice first, as this worry is present, can you also note if your breath suddenly feels a little more shallow or quicker? Is there any change in the quality of the breath? And while you're there, can you begin to create a safe place for this breath, whatever is different about it or if it's the same. So relaxing around it.
And now while this topic is present in the mind, what's going on in the front of your body? What are the feelings beneath this obsessive thought, this worrying thought? What's the emotion beneath it? And just welcome whatever it is you feel. If your throat's tight, if the body feels triggered like it wants to run, or if it feels kind of numb, whatever it is you feel in the abdomen, the chest, the throat, the face, just welcome it. Say yes. Welcome. This feeling is welcome. No longer resisting the emotion beneath the obsessive thought, welcoming it, integrating it into our lives, not running away from it. Go back to the feeling. And then... Lastly, what kind of quality of attention does your mind suddenly become distracted when the mind was previously open? Does it now feel very tight and constrained? Does suddenly the mind feel darker? Does the mind feel more distant from the world around us? What happens to this state of mind while this worry is present and welcoming that too. So everything that makes this thought so painful, we're welcoming, we're holding, we're not resisting. And if you practice this enough, you'll notice that over time, the repetitiveness, the sheer insistence of the thought will begin to dissipate. And finally, lastly, just to the thought, the worry itself, just welcome, you're allowed. I'm not going to fight you. I'm not going to dedicate my attention to you. Just note it and then keep paying attention to what's going on beneath it. The breath, the feelings, the quality of attention. So at this point I'm going to ring the bowl and as always reminding you when you hear the sound to just lift your eyelids enough to look at the ground in front of you and try to integrate sight into this fully embodied awareness that you've cultivated. The Buddha talked about heedfulness and watchfulness. And the goal of practice is really not limited to anything that happens in meditation, but really what happens in the rest of our life. Can we bring this awareness of feelings and breath and emotional states 
pay attention to them and welcome them and integrate them into the rest of our lives. How the right hemisphere speaks and states its needs non-verbally.